electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to a very special edition of Taking Stock. I'm Mike Santoli. Join us as we try something a little bit different tonight. Very different, Mike. Hi, I'm Josh Brown. And if we can have a TV show, you can too. <laughs> so we're just straight replacement level TV hosts is what you're you saying. You did Got a it. lot of TV. You did more TV today than <laughs> Kelly Ripa. I was watching. You, you were great. Not I as hope well. you saved something for tonight. Not as well, but okay. more of it. All right, for the next hour, Josh and I are going to tackle all the topics investors are talking about. We'll discuss and debate, maybe even argue argue a bit. So let's get right to it. We're going to start with a segment we're calling On the Clock, where we break down big stories of the day, the week, the month, all of them in rapid fire fashion. First up, the July jobs report, of course, out this morning. Uh, Job growth lower than expected, 187,000 net new jobs from July. The unemployment rate falls to three and a half percent, downwardly revised numbers for the prior months. How does it boil down in terms of the economic outlook and the debate? As soon as I saw it, my first thought was, This is maybe the most reinforcing jobs report you could have asked for if Goldilocks was what you if you wanted to make the soft landing case. This is it perfectly. You couldn't have scripted it better. You slightly underperformed the expectations on headline jobs. You get two downward revisions for the two prior months and you get an uptick in the uh, in uh, in a downtick rather in the unemployment rate. So you're basically looking at a situation where. If you were spending the last three months converting from recession to soft landing, thank you for this. This is exactly what I need to feel better about that. And I can go another month or so feeling the same way. Now, yields did back off of these multi-month highs, perhaps on this number. Perhaps it was just kind of an unwind of this very kind of wild trade higher in yields we had this week. Stocks. You know, hit a little bit of turbulence. I wouldn't really attribute it to the jobs number. It mostly happened around 1 o'clock. So I didn't ask you at the top. I mean, the S&P is 2.8% off its highs. You're going to be okay? You're a little rattled? This or- is the start of what can only be a monster bear market. <laughs> I, well, I would have said if they would have blown out that jobs number to the upside, you could have seen that wild yield action yeah. get worse. And that would have been a worse case scenario than what we had today, which frankly seemed like a low conviction kind of boredom stock sell off. Yeah. OK, Apple is out. It is what it is. Let me take something off the table for the before the weekend. Yeah. I spoke to a few people from different parts of the the uh, the ecosystem. Nobody seemed to think that today was more meaningful than what we saw on the screen. Yeah, obviously, seasonal air pocket makes a lot of sense. Sentiment was getting a little frothy. And also you had a lot of bears kind of throwing in the towel in the last couple of weeks. And that sometimes means, you know, it's time for a rest for the market. But you also had J.P. Morgan Bank of America going into the soft landing camp. And I think the market was kind of already there priced waiting for. Did we need J.P. Morgan to man that wall of worry? Did we? Like, yeah, right. Have Who we knows? taken down all of the walls of worry? Are there any left? Ex Hussman, are there any substantial walls of worry left? Um, I don't. I think there's definitely some worry left because you did see some people looking at this jobs number saying there's nothing inconsistent with us sliding from here down to zero job growth into next year. But there's no real evidence that that's where we're headed. Let's uh, let's talk Amazon. So uh, this was a bright spot today. Stock didn't really give up much, even as the Nasdaq sold off. Amazon reported earnings last night, 12 percent growth at AWS. 
Other cloud stocks rallied in sympathy. This is what Amazon had to do. They, I mean, they really had no choice. This is just to give people a sense of where this, this thing is coming from. Uh, Amazon is the furthest away of the large cap tech names from the all-time highs. It's 31% below those highs. Only Tesla is worse, 38% off the highs. Uh, but this is still an expensive stock. Yeah. Not great execution over the last year. Spent way too much money in the pandemic. Now they're unwinding it. They got the benefit of those lower costs at the same time as they got that bounce in cloud spending. And that's why you get a stock does what it does today. In combination with, as you say, I think low expectations. The street was really kind of worn down by the chronic underperformance over the last three years of the stock. Also, the sense out there that there wasn't a sense of urgency around getting margins back up uh, and all the rest of it. You know, the price target for the stock a week ago consensus on the sell side was 145 bucks. Okay. okay? It, they, they jacked it by $20 basically since these, this report. So it showed you that nobody, even though there was 90% buy ratings, yeah. nobody really loved it. It was low conviction. So it's one of the rare stocks where you can benefit from some catch up. Imp- important to note, this is not beat by a penny. Yeah. And this is not, oh, we had an investment gain or we had a one-time tax benefit. This was a doubling in the expected operating income to $7.7 billion. Yeah. In the scheme of a trillion dollar market cap, is it, is it that big of a deal? Maybe not. Right. But maybe symbolically, hey, this company could still surprise us to the upside. And the it's growth rate downside. in the cloud business is back to something acceptable, 12%. It probably bottomed. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, Microsoft was a relative outperformer today. It felt like people decided the cloud business seems like it's got uh, a little bit of uh, a fo- its feet under it. I think Amazon, the dynamics of Amazon's cloud and Microsoft's cloud, one thing that we're learning, they're a little bit different. Yeah. Amazon's cloud uh, demand moves pretty quickly, and maybe Microsoft's deals take longer to close, and maybe that could account for some of that. My rubric on this stock is very simple. Uh, I think it has to work because either Jassy can write the ship mm-hmm. or the big guy comes back right. off the boat, right? He's, he's engaged, he'll get married, and yeah. then maybe he looks at the share price after three years of no progress, which is where we are, yeah. and says, I could do an Iger. Right. I got enough at stake. I I could do it. I mean, it's in theory, it's true. And I will say Jassy got high marks for the conference call because previously I think it felt as if he was, you know, not quite selling it. But uh, he's he's getting his swagger back. It's good. It's good. All right. Let's move on to uh, another big guy, uh, Icon, Carl Icon, his uh, company, Icon Enterprises, shares plunging today after the company cut its dividend in half. Carl Icon's company has been battling with a short seller, Hindenburg Research, in May, Hindenburg accused Icon of using, quote, uh, a Ponzi-like structure to pay dividends. What it really meant is they were kind of selling equity uh, units and, and raising capital, distributing them as dividends. Uh, he owns a more than a 50% stake in the company. He wasn't paying himself to cash dividends. And in other words, overstated relative to, to earnings. Was this sad for you? The whole... The whole uh, saga, a little bit sad. Yeah. I'm saddened by it. Yeah. Uh, the Hindenburg, I mean, I'm not saying it's a, I'm not passing legal judgment, but the Hindenburg guy was vindicated on a lot of the things that he said. Right. And the evidence is that they have to retrench. When you pay a dividend, let me back up. Not all distributions are dividends, although colloquially we call them dividends because they get paid to shareholders. But sometimes a distribution is not an equity dividend. And when you do pay a distribution, you actually, for tax reasons, you have to tell the investor who's receiving that payment what's making up that payment. And if it's a return of their own capital, it gets treated differently for tax purposes. Well, if you pay two, this is the actual numbers in this case. If you pay a $2 dividend, 
and a dollar eighty of that is a return of your cash, that's a that's problematic. Yeah. And that's that's how a short seller can come in here and look at this with fresh eyes and say, hey, wait a minute. There's no there's no returns from this yeah. portfolio of invest. They're just giving the money back and raising new money. That part doesn't look great. The part that I think makes it somewhat look a little bit better, like optically, is that Icon is taking his own distribution in the form of shares right. of the partnership. If it were a Ponzi, he would not be doing that. It would defeat the purpose That's of the Ponzi. Yeah. But, I mean, my hat's off to, to Hindenburg. Yeah. He seems to have gotten this one right. One last thing on Icon. I want to t- get your take. He keeps calling this self-serving, the self-serving show. <laughs> Coming from Icon is, is, yeah. is not everything he's done and said over the last 40 years been somewhat self-serving. Right. Aren't we all self-serving is when we write them- letters to companies and shareholders? Right, and publicly embarrass them so that the stock goes in the direction Put you want Put pressure on them yeah. in the media. Oh, I mean, sure. it's, uh, it's, uh, exactly. this is what we That's what the we business do. we're in. And okay. by the way, after the close, the company did report that they've received some communication from the SEC. They're looking at some governance issues. It was predictable. The timing of that inquiry was, I don't like, I was feel, May. Listen, and I, as a as a Wall Street history buff, and somebody that just loves the game, yeah. it's it makes me kind of sad that he's going to go out like this. Yeah. Well, but maybe it's not over. He also said he's going to go back to his uh, his traditional activist type investing, as opposed to just betting against the stock market, which is one of the reasons that the performance hadn't been great in the first place. Could work. Uh, fintech stocks. So this was not a great week for fintechs. Uh, there haven't been a lot of great weeks for fintech Not stocks in the, no. <laughs> in the last couple of years. Uh, Block down 18 percent. PayPal down 15 percent since Monday. Are investors having a moment of truth about these, these business models, these companies? I, I mean, I, I go back to sort of an initial principle that I don't really believe fintech exists. And I've said that for kind of a long time. That's not being glib about, like, obviously there's innovation in finance. But it's basically digital financial services that's dressed up to be something more than actual financial services. So PayPal Square, there are these networks built on top of the existing payment processing platforms. Um, Obviously, Robinhood is another one where, look, there's been brokers forever. This is a new one. It's a nice, snazzy app that's on top of another, you know, broader trading network. The point is what's happening now is they're not quite at scale where the businesses are generating great returns and they're having to retrench on the cost side uh, because it's sort of commoditization of some of the products like uh, like Square, just fee compression. I mean, that's what happens in financial services. So I think it's a CAC story. And I, I've said in my own industry, wealth management, 10 years ago, the press was awash in stories about how robo-advisors were going to sure. take over and of course, none of that happened, and none of them have come public, and they can't even get acquired. They, they, yeah. <laughs> there are bids to buy them where the bidder actually backs out. Why? It's not that they're terrible businesses. They're actually really innovative and, and uh, hardworking people. The problem is cost of, to acquire a customer. Yeah. Your cost per thousand customers is outrageous. It's, it costs you the same as businesses that actually make money. These companies don't even make money. And so that's really, for me, why a lot of these fintech companies, they got too much of the benefit of the doubt that one day profits would come. I want to share some of the user bases here with you. PayPal is at scale. It's yes, 435 sure. million, and they have the market cap to... to, uh, to yeah, 70 to billion market cap, yeah. Block is 51 million, which sounds great. It's it, globally, it's, it's, it's not much. Uh, Coinbase, 7.3 million. Uh, SoFi, I mean, 6.2 million. Yeah. 
Starbucks app has 31 million users. <laughs> right. Is that one of the biggest fintech player? Right. I mean, they have their own currency on the app. So pretty much it's yeah. it's not been easy to acquire customers. It costs too much. Yeah. These businesses aren't even trying to make that much money anyway with the customers they have. It's a very I mean, difficult slice of the market. SoFi actually has done better recently, but it's smaller, $9 billion market cap or so. Um, and what I find interesting is that they've been touting how they're, they're now a bank, and therefore they can enjoy some of the economics of a bank, like taking deposits, et cetera. So, they're better off with that comp than yeah. being comp to Robinhood. Yeah. And I think a lot of SoFi's market, market price is going to be dictated by student loan Resolution. Oh, I thought it was going to be by uh, Taylor Swift playing it. So Taylor Swift and yeah. student loan yeah. resolution. And maybe the Rams regular season schedule. <laughs> exactly. We'll okay. um, all right, let's talk about the meme trade because uh, apparently it's back in the news and we can't avoid it if we wanted to. Shares of trucking company Yellow have been soaring, among others. Uh, now, that's despite the fact that on Sunday, Yellow actually shut down operations. Uh, and is uh, intending to file for bankruptcy. So we can think back to what happened with Hertz during the pandemic and actually almost paid off. Uh, And Tupperware is another one where it seemed like a pure uh, meme trade on nothing. And they did restructure their debt uh, just as of this morning. And so that did give it maybe some fundamental basis. George Soros wrote about reflexivity 25, 30 years ago in his book. Just this idea that things can happen in the markets that then... uh, change the world outside of the markets based on that that sure. price act. I mean, that's one tenet of it. Um, but that's exactly what we saw with AMC. It probably should have been liquidated, but the shareholders saved it. Yeah. Uh, didn't quite work a, 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 as well for Bed Bath & Beyond. So it's, it's not a it's not foolproof. But when a stock like that's at 50 cents gets enough momentum to go to three, four five dollars yeah. and all of a sudden financing becomes available, uh, yeah. It can literally change the course of the history of these companies. So I'm not against it. I don't love the idea of uh, corporate lawyers and bankruptcy attorneys sitting in a room and saying, wait, why go through Chapter 11 when we actually have demand? We can sell 500 million worth of stock and we can actually avoid all the costs of court. I don't love that as a concept because of how easily that could be abused. Yeah. And I know the regulators are going to look at that sure. every time it happens, but uh, that, look, that's I, possible here. I, I would emphasize that this type of activity on one level or another has always happened. We didn't call them memes. And it wasn't, didn't happen as quickly. Yeah. It takes a brand name company. It takes a, probably a big short position, very low share price, uh, all that uh, working uh, together for all of them. So. Here's my resolution. Anyone at any phase of the bankruptcy uh, process can sell equity to investors provided they don't sell it to Americans, sell it overseas. <laughs> like, you want to sell it in Dubai, I, I have no problem with that at all. Is that, that's import, a fair compromise. Import the capital for the bank. Company. Yellow Roadway, please sell stock on Mars. Not, don't, don't sell it here. Okay. okay. So uh, maybe you want to contribute to his uh, campaign. All right, up next, is this week's rapid rise in bond yields forcing investors to rethink their allocation to stocks? We'll debate that next. And we are just getting started on the CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tonight, stocks versus bonds, growth versus yield, the age-old asset class clash, plus Apple earnings fallout and a Berkshire breakthrough. And they said it, head-to-head on the market trends that mean the most for your money. That and more when Taking Stock returns. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is Constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to Indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back. Rising bond yields are leading investors to wonder, are stocks worth the risk at today's valuations? Wall Street Journal had a story this week detailing how the equity risk premium has sunk to a 20-year low. So is this narrowing gap a sign the bull market for stocks is running out of gas? Here to discuss all this is Aswath Demoter, an NYU professor of finance, often called the dean of valuations. And, uh, Professor, great to have you with us. And uh, also great that you've been doing an incredible amount of deep work on this exact topic as we wanted to to discuss it. So I reference the, the so-called equity risk premium as very commonly and simplistically defined on a lot of Wall Street, which is the earnings yield of the S&P 500. That's the inverse of the P.E. compared to the Treasury yield. And is there a gap? Is there a small gap, a big gap? Is it positive or negative? And that somehow tells us our stocks cheap or expensive. Um, does that make sense? And what's your assessment currently? It's, it's both sloppy and lazy. And here's why. I mean, I'm, uh, the, the, the article talked about the last 20 years. I'm a little surprised, and perhaps not so, that they did not go back before 2000. Now, between 1988 and 2002, the earnings yield was consistently lower than the T-bond rate. In other words, the equity risk premium, according to the, 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 the metric used by the journal, was actually negative. And that would have kept you out of stocks over one of the best decades for stocks in the 1990s. It's, it's incomplete because it misses two components with stocks. One is there's earnings growth. A stock is not a bond. And the second is, when you grow, you often make more than your cost of equity. So if you want a shortcut, by all means, you can attach yourself to the earnings price ratio, but shortcuts come with costs. And uh, what is a preferable way of trying to figure out if equity investors are being properly compensated for the risk of owning stocks? Then bring in the rest of the story, right? It's uh, the earnings from the most recent year matter. So does growth. So does how efficiently you deliver growth. You can't run away from fundamentals by looking at just one fundamental. 
So if you want an equity risk premium, you've got to incorporate your expectations or market's expectations of what earnings will do in the future and how much companies have to reinvest to deliver those earnings. I mean, that's where, I mean, it's not rocket science. It just requires that you bring in the rest of the story. And if you do, stocks are more expensive now, obviously, than they were at the start of the year. But are they more expensive than they've been historically? Not at all. In fact, the equity risk premium for bringing growth and excess returns is close to about 4.4%. Would I like it to be five or six? Absolutely. But at 4.4%, you're earning a higher equity risk premium than, you're, than, than the average premium over the last 60 years. Osworth, it's Josh Brown. I want to ask you uh, a behavioral finance question, if I can. Uh, as I deal with investors and, and have for the past 20 years or so, and what I find is that very few investors, regardless of how sophisticated they are, are actually positioning themselves for the next 10 years, whether they're looking at equity risk premium or any other measure. What they're actually doing is positioning themselves based on how they feel about whatever happened over the last three months. And sentiment plays a really big role in what that equity risk premium will become in practice. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that, that cognitive dissonance that uh, the investor is going to behave one way regardless of what any particular formula might indicate they should do? No matter what your motives are for trading, ultimately, there's a number that reflects what you do, which is the price. The way I compute the implied equity risk premium is not through theory. I tell people, don't tell me what you'd like to earn in equity risk premiums. Just tell me what you pay. That gives you a way. So in a sense, the way I compute equity risk premiums is not a construct built on fundamentals. It's, it's based on what people pay for stocks. Simply put, it's like a yield to maturity for stocks. If you get over-exuberant and you push up stock prices well above where they should be, my measure of the equity risk premium will go down because the price will go up, the cash flows are not there, the earnings are not there. My equity risk premium will go down to reflect the fact that you paid too much. So by using a price-based approach where I use the market price to drive my implied equity risk premium, I'm accepting the premise that behavioral factors matter, mood and momentum matter, and that sometimes maybe many times, investors lose their minds. They, they push up things more than they should, and the price will capture that effect. What do you do with a year like 2009, where the earnings actually go negative for the index? And of course, that's not operating earnings. That is a lot of write-downs and, and losses and uh, paper activity. It seems that maybe the ERP needs to be suspended in that moment, and we need to just use common sense and say, these stocks are buys. Here's where, if you bring in expected future earnings, you don't have that issue, right? As long as you're stuck with trailing earnings, all kinds of weird stuff can happen. But if you bring in expectations of earnings, even in 2009, at the absolute bottom, people's expectations of earnings were positive, even though 2008 numbers were in shambles. My implied equity risk premium is based on expected earnings in the future, now, people might be wrong about those expectations, but assume that earnings will not ever change from last year's number. Strikes me as you know, unrealistic, which is what the earnings to price approach does. So I actually have an implied premium on January 1st, 2009 that reflects those expectations. And guess what? It was a huge number because prices had been pushed down so much that when you brought in those expectations, people were demanding a high premium as they should after a crisis. You know, there's been so much focus in the last few months about the very largest companies, these seven 
you know, names in the NASDAQ that are more expensive, at least on current results, have trillion dollar plus valuations in some cases. Uh, and this idea that either the market is saying that they're going to have a much longer future of very profitable business or that they're way overvalued. I mean, is there a way to generalize which is correct? I think you've got to differentiate across the companies because those seven largest companies come from very different businesses in terms of how they make money. So I think if you make an argument for Amazon, it's got to be very different than the argument for Apple. I do think, though, that that concentration you see in increase in value at the top reflects changes that are happening in the economy. We're in an economy where you have more winner-take-all businesses, and I think you're going to see that reflected in the market. So rather than think of the market as being out of its mind, maybe we need to think about what has changed in the 21st century about the economy. And I think what's changed is, you know, we have, you know, you know and this is very little to do with antitrust law. The nature of winner-take-all businesses, networking benefits means that the biggest businesses are in a better position to get even bigger. Yeah, uh, and they've, uh, they've proven that so far. Aswath, uh, great to have you tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, coming up. Two ways to look at Apple stock. The company reporting a drop in sales for the third straight quarter, but it is up 45% this year. That's next on Taking Stock. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. It's time for a segment we're calling Top Down, Bottom Up. We've got two different ways of valuing a stock. I'm going to take the top-down macro-type approach, Josh. You'll take a different approach, going bottom-up, getting into some of the fundamentals. So we'll start with Apple, a uh, company down 5% today. The stock was down 5%. And 5% of Apple's $150 billion it's huge, it's of market huge. cap. It's not a regular 5%. Wiped out. So you yeah. own the stock. What's the smart way yeah. of looking at it as a business? I think you have to be comfortable as a shareholder that Apple very oftentimes is going to have a great year where the market doesn't, and then the market catches up, and Apple sits there, and you say, did I just buy a bond? Yeah. But that is the history of Apple. I think about 2013 being a watershed year. Apple ends up selling at, I think, a 12 multiple, back out the cash, maybe cheaper. Yeah. And the entire market is on a rampage that year. And if you were a shareholder of Apple, there was this temptation like, oh, maybe the run is over. Maybe it hadn't even started yet. You have to be okay with that. Now, you don't have that this year. Apple's up 40-some-odd percent, even with today's uh, drop. So I think uh, you've had a really nice run. If the stock just marks time between now and when we get the numbers for the next phone, which should be Q4, yeah. we'll get, like, the real numbers. 
You like you have to be okay waiting for that. Right. I think that's important. It, it operates somewhat on its own cycle. It's not even yeah. really the macro cycle. But I do think, and I've been pointing this out for a while, this right here, this incredibly linear climb in the stock this year until this break was on something besides expectations for what the company was about to deliver. It seems to me because you've got all this attention on it's 7.3% of the S&P 500. It's a safe haven yeah. when you're worried about stuff. Uh, it's a great growth business long term. Uh, and so it seemed to me it was about, look, if you're an active fund manager, you can't even own a full complement weighted position uh, to reflect the S&P weight. Just by rule, you can't own yeah. 7%. So in other words, there was just this sense that it was a perpetual motion machine from a macro level. So you had a few dynamics at play all at once. The first thing is, anytime you sold Apple stock over the last seven or eight years, there was one of three buyers. The first buyer is an index fund, probably the Qs yep. or, or the S&P 500. The second buyer was Apple itself. Massive, massive $100 billion at a time buyback program. The third buyer was Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Who do you want to be on the other side of the trade with less? Okay, so that's one. The second thing, the phenomenon this year, and I think there's a lot of stocks fall into this category. People said to themselves, you know what? I'm not sure about the growth outlook. Everyone's saying recession. Meanwhile, you got a company with 45% gross margins. Even if it doesn't grow, they're going to return a ton of cash to shareholders. And God forbid we go into a recession Apple looks more and more like a consumer products company, a staple, than it does uh, uh, an electronics company. People just replace their phone no yeah. matter what's going on in their life. So that, that benefit, I think you could see it there in the charts. You don't get that benefit forever. We're now going to go into the fourth consecutive quarter of falling revenue yeah. for this company. I think there's a little bit of a rethink, and maybe it started today. Yeah. I mean, look, they're, they're on the cusp of $400 billion in annual revenue. It's just not that easy to grow fast off that base. So we'll see where it goes. You mentioned Berkshire Hathaway. Let's look at that stock uh, from a similar couple of angles. They've had a big weekend ahead. Company's going to report earnings tomorrow morning. Uh, one of the many things that distinguishes Berkshire is that it reports earnings on a Saturday. Uh, but you mentioned yeah. the Apple position. They own 5.8 percent of Apple. They actually just bought it and mostly have whole, held. Their stake goes up because Apple keeps buying back stock from everybody else. It accounts for about 20 percent of the value of uh, Berkshire's market cap. Right? Now. Yeah, it's 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 50 percent of Berkshire's equity portfolio and a yeah. quarter of the value of the entire company. And to your point, one of the things that Warren Buffett takes a great deal of delight in reminding us of every time they do an annual letter is uh, because the float is shrinking, yeah. our percentage of Apple's earnings keeps going up. Um, there will come a day where maybe they decide it would be appropriate to sell some. That's not going to be a fun day for Apple shareholders. Yeah. Uh, but they have not done so yet. They've held on. It's been, I think, Arguably the greatest trade of his entire career. Right. It's amazing that he made it in and his And it only 80s. happened in the last decade. Yeah. And it all, right. And so. honestly, without Apple, the stock's definitely fallen behind because it, it only has barely outperformed, uh, you know, only a, a handful of time it, it, frames it, from here on back. Yeah, it's, a, it's, an, it's an insurance slash uh, yeah. uh, energy slash well, that's utility thing. Uh, it's a massive toll taker on the economy yeah. uh, in every way. And if you talk to those guys, talk to, uh, to Buffett and Munger, all they want to talk about is every little individual business. You went to, not o- the you went to Omaha, though, yeah. this year. Uh, the Last thing that's, couple years. So I'm a shareholder in Berkshire, and everyone says, what's going to happen when? Yeah. I felt very good about the way they put Greg out there and let him, and let him actually field questions and talk. And, of course, they've been doing that with Ajit Jain yeah. for a while. I don't think you're going to get the same reaction in the stock that people have been betting on for a long time. Yeah. 
I, I think things are going to be okay, and of course, we hope that day doesn't come. They but keep emphasizing they've built this thing for it to. Uh, kind I, so of I live believe it. I guess what I'm time. trying to say yeah. is I believe it. Yeah. Was that your take? Was that the Definitely. vibe when you when you were out there? That well, people- it's a it's a, it's a it's a little bit of an ambivalence because that's the vibe that we these are just great businesses that are going to live forever. Uh, and also, we worship these two individual men who are you know a, t- t- a combined 195 years old or yeah. something. So yeah, you have to hold two opposing thoughts in yeah, your head at exactly. the same time. All right, now as we head to a break, take a look at where the indices ended the week. The Dow was down 1%, the S&P 500 off more than 2%, the NASDAQ down nearly 3%. That's its worst week since March. Don't go anywhere. More Taking Stocks coming up next. Coming up, they said it. Are these recession calls worth ringing a warning bell over? Plus, We go between the lines on the Wall Street scuttle you can't afford to miss. And meet the Mets around the horn on the state of the Amazons when we return. Most stocks don't work. I didn't say it. They said it. This week, Nick Colas and his he team said it. at DataTrek Research <laughs> said it. Uh, and Nick, it's great to have you on set to, uh, to actually talk about it and defend this position, which a lot of people uh, are maybe going to take issue with, but probably shouldn't. Why don't, well, first of all, what does the research say about how most stocks perform over time? Yes, yeah, so the research is from 1990 to 2020, so a nice chunky 30-year span. And what it shows is over that period, global stocks, okay, everything in the world, all global stocks, 2.4% of all the stocks make up all the gains for all global equities, period, full stop. That's it, 2.4%. How many stocks is that? 65,000 stocks. <laughs> that's it? That's it. Of every stock that's ever existed? Yes, for over that time frame. Okay. So 2.4% make up all the gains, so fine. What does the remainder look like? The majority, it's 57, 58%, don't beat T-bills over that 30-year period. And the balance makes some money. Mm-hmm. So that's just the math. 58% of stocks don't beat T-bills over time. Could, is it fair to say, though, that the stocks that disappear for negative reasons, meaning they get delisted, they go Chapter 11, they start off as uh, not very widely owned, probably small cap, maybe even micro cap. Yep. And if you were to just do this exercise with companies north of $500 million market cap, it would probably be very different. Or do you not think that would make that much of a difference? It doesn't feel that much different. I'll tell you why. I mean, it resonated with me for a couple of reasons. The primary one is when you trade or when you invest, what happens? You look at the end of a year and invariably one, two, three, four, five names made all your money for the year. Everything else was for practice. Okay. And that's exactly what the math shows. It's not just us as traders or as investors saying, oh, wow, I should be better. It's no, the system works that way. A handful of names make your gains. You know what it reminded me of immediately is, so the SMH is the semiconductor ETF, right? You know what the H is for originally? Mm-hmm. Holders, yeah. which was a kind of ETF, a sector ETF. I think Merrill Lynch I think Merrill developed it. Right. Merrill Lynch developed it, and the theory was they looked at their private clients' portfolios over time, and they saw that basically it was two or three stocks that over decades made the difference. So the holders were going to directly own all the stocks in the sector and never change them. And then the big ones would just basically give you the returns. The other ones would fall by the wayside. Is this an argument for indexing in a sense? Yeah, it's a huge argument for indexing because indexing forces you to own these chunky oversized positions. It is not comfortable owning 12% of the S&P in two names, mm-hmm. Apple and Microsoft, but that's what you have to do. That's where the returns have been. Both those names are at the top of the list in terms of contrib- contributors. Just five names made up 10% of all global. You pointed out, so this is all over the world, but really the only global stock that makes the list 
of the biggest contributors to uh, equity performance in aggregate is Tencent. Yep. So there's nothing in Europe on the list, whole continent. In the top 35, there are three. Um, there's a couple of Swiss names. LVMH, LVMH is, Roche is on there. And Nestle. Nestle. Okay. I mean, that, that in and of itself is remarkable. Yep. Uh, the dominance of the United States on this list. Um, can you envision a scenario where that changes? And if we were to do, run this exercise 20 years from now, you would see a, a, a lot of other types of companies on the list, not just Silicon Valley-born U.S. venture-backed tech companies that grew up. No, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like this is going to be the persistent trend for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years because the U.S. spends twice as much as the rest of the world on venture capital. So we spend 2x what Europe and Asia do. And if you spend the money on venture capital, it's like the only free lunch equity investors get is let the VCs go plow all that money in, try to build these companies. We get whatever comes out the other side. Don't have to pay a dime. And that's great. But that is also what drives these returns. Yeah. So all you have to do is own those those top companies and you'll be fine. Well, the 2.3% the that created the returns weren't the top companies when they were yeah. starting to generate those returns. So yeah. you got to cash your keep, net a little wide. you got to keep bobbing and weaving yeah. and keep, keep owning them. Can yeah. we ask you about the recession that uh, is imminent and yet never coming? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this week we had a bunch of chief strategist types uh, roll back their recession expectations, uh, either whether or not it's going to happen at all or this year or uh, even if, if it does happen, maybe it won't be as bad as it would have been because of circumstance ABC. How do you see the, the current scenario? Well, also, Barkin at Richmond Fed basically said they don't, he thinks one of the reasons we haven't had it yet is that companies were expecting one yeah. and, and operated in a way uh, that they, they became more like careful. Expecting the Spanish Inquisition. We, we, <laughs> we're not supposed to, but we did. Uh, you right. know, you sit on a trading desk, like a big trading desk, and once in a while somebody will call out an old piece of news, and the response is always, Titanic sinks, or man lands on moon, <laughs> right? Because right? Like, it's so obvious, everybody knows it. So all those calls this week kind of reminded me of Titanic sinks and man lands on moon. It's like, yeah, duh. We're not right. getting a recession this year. What else right. do you need to know? But what about the idea that on some level companies have rationalized their businesses or they've operated in a way that somehow kept us from getting overextended and, and maybe made the, the expansion more sustainable. Can we even know that yet? We can't know it. And look, I mean, the, the hardest thing about recessions is every single one since 1970 was caused by a shock. Exactly. Yeah. So where's our shock? Until we get a shock, it's probably premature to worry. But again, you can't predict the shock by definition. So we're pretty set up, well set up now, but you know, we'll see if we get a shock. Last year, there were CFO surveys with almost 100% confidence a recession was coming. So to, to Michael's point and, and to Barkin's point, I guess, uh, maybe it's good for us to keep that paranoia in, in the back of our heads as business people and just always be thinking about that worst case uh, and reversing some of the excesses of years like 2021. Like maybe that's the big takeaway is we're so nimble now. This is not like shutting down a factory. Facebook can just let go of 20,000 people inside of three months and almost will itself to avoid a recession, yeah. at least a, a company-wide recession. Look, at a corporate level, we're seeing it with Q2 earnings. Q2 earnings basically are margin management beats. They're not really revenue beats. Right. So we're getting all that. The thing I question is, why didn't we see openings come down in jolts faster if everybody was setting up yeah. for a recession? Like, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think they're fake. That's why. But job uh, you and I have talked right. about that. Yes. I think the job, the job openings, the reported job openings, are not capturing the mobility of the workforce I have five job openings right now listed in five different cities. It's one job. 
I don't care where I hire the person. The thing is, they're consistent. So you're buying like classified ads in a local paper in five different cities? How does this work? What's a local paper? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. All right, Nick, hey, great to see you. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, earnings season still in full swing. What do we know about the consumer? Are they spending or staying cautious? Josh is reading between the lines of some recent quotes from companies and executives. He's going to give us an answer when we come back. Welcome back. Sometimes I'm reading a conference call transcript or an analyst note, and something catches my eye that might not be entirely obvious to everyone else, because I am very bright and perspicacious, uh, if you will. Anyway, tonight we're reading between the lines. I want to point out a thread that occurred in three different earnings calls, probably more than three. These are the three that we went with. But I think this stuff is worth noting. So we have uh, the remarks from three CEOs who have been on conference calls for earnings in the past couple of weeks. And I just want to give you a little bit of... Well, yeah, so you think like like of any CEO who's got visibility into the consumer, obviously the credit card companies, MasterCard, Visa, of course, uh, they see every type of purchase. But then Chipotle, uh, I guess, into a certain type of consumer. Uh, Anyway, let me just give you a couple of things here. Both the lower income consumer and kind of our high income consumers are showing really good strength. We're feeling really good about the blah, 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 blah. Uh, the Visa guy is saying the same thing. MasterCard is saying the same thing. Every CEO is being asked this question by multiple analysts. They're being asked it in different ways, almost as though it's a trick question. You're hearing almost nobody say, whether it's the lower income consumer or the top of the range, almost no one is saying we have an issue with any kind of demand. It's yeah. incredible. Um, but what is the big takeaway to you from a situation where, I don't know, we're almost a year into a rate hiking cycle and nothing. I mean, I think the first thing you have to at least concede is that CEOs don't always see it coming from far away. Now, they're going to have a good handle on the trends of the last few months. And so they're not seeing reason for concern. But a couple of explanations. One, the jobs number today showed four I don't, I don't know. In, in the Great Depression, burritos were the first thing to get to go. <laughs> that is true. No, I, yeah. I understand no, I your mean, point. Basically, but, guacamole piled up, you know, <laughs> you know, in these huge slag heaps on it the was street. Some, it yes. was tumultuous. But these guys are looking for it because everyone is yeah. telling them no, it's for coming. Sure. Okay, go I on. I agree with that. But 4.4% annualized wage growth today in the jobs number. Yeah. Nominal growth both in incomes and the overall economy has been at a level um, that we actually think we weren't used to in the 2010s, right? Yeah. We were kind of at stall speed the whole time. So we have the wherewithal. Consumers are not overlevered. They were not going into the recession burdened by outsized amounts of debt. They can handle what they have. So maybe we're kind of working down the, the cushion yeah. uh, to a degree. But, I mean, I don't know, if 3.5% unemployment, why are we expecting a consumer to fail? So, right. So it, always, it almost comes down to, like, who are you going to believe? Me, the, the, the dour columnist for the Financial <laughs> Times, or yeah. 500 CEOs from, from the, some of the largest companies on earth. Yeah. Like, who, who are you going to trust? That's who I'm going to trust. I would say the one area you did see it in this earnings reporting season was from some of, like, the packaged food companies, the consumer staples companies who are like, we're getting pushed back on price. We can't raise prices that much anymore. People are trading down. We're seeing yeah. some volumes get hit in almost everything except for like snacks, like well, Pepsi is seeing nothing. So, that, so that's really interesting. So somebody could take the JetBlue call and they yeah. could say, oh, you see, the yeah. consumer's tapped out. And then Delta comes in from the, off the top rope and says, no, actually, they're flying to, to Spain. 
Right. <laughs> not only are they not tapped out, actually, international flights are up 14 percent year over year. They're just getting warmed up. So the other part of it is the strongest parts of the labor market in some ways are, you know, lower income categories. Yes. Kind of real economy jobs, not as much white collar office stuff, which has seen some trimming. Uh, and so, you know, that's people who, you know, spend what they make. Uh, are still making it. Yeah. No, I think that's a really great point. And uh, I don't think anything's going to change. We're going to get much more on the quote-unquote consumer next week. Yeah. Some of these companies have their own idiosyncratic issues like Disney. There's going to be that tendency to look at whatever Disney says and and pronounce a verdict on the consumer. I really think you want to go with the aggregate of all of the data or at least all of the sentiment and not uh, laser focusing on any one company reporting. Yep. Fair enough. So... All right, we're going to go. Coming up, what the heck is going on with the Mets? And the Yankees, for that matter. The sad state of affairs in New York baseball. Uh, Look at next week, what Michael and I are looking forward to as well. Stick around. You made it this far. Might as well watch the end. We're going to do something good for you. Is that good? Welcome back to Taking Stock. There's a lot going on next week in terms of earnings. we got CPI. Uh, we're each going to pick one thing that we're watching. Uh, so, Josh, I mean, look, it's the second week of August, but it actually is kind of a busy slate. Market seems like it's in a little bit of a wobbly spot. What are you watching? U- UPS is always interesting to me. I think, uh, I think there's a lot just to be gleaned from the commentary on the call. Disney, of course, I think is going to be the one that the media will be paying most yeah. attention to. Uh, there's all sorts of palace intrigue there, and that's always fun. And then, of course, CPI, PPI, which I think are Thursday and then Friday. And uh, it's not that the Fed and the next rate hike is really front of mind for the yeah. market, but so what? We all have a lot of content to make, and we'll... we'll exactly. We'll and make, look, we'll it, it. it matters on some level. I'm definitely interested in, in CPI. We're going to have to probably absorb a little firmness in the headline number. People are going to want to watch core. I mean, gasoline yeah. prices are at like a you know nine-month high or something like that. Uh, however, how the bond market just kind of navigates it all is going to matter quite a bit. We do have a good amount of Treasury uh, debt issuance coming next week. I and mean, I think one of the things that spooked the bond market was a reminder from Fitch and just basically from the Treasury itself. It's raising the size of its Treasury bill uh, offerings. So just one of those tap on the shoulders that says, by the way, we have a lot of demand for your capital to finance the government. So all that stuff uh, together, I agree with you on the Fed. We're going to get the Jackson Hole meeting later this month. We don't have an f- actual policy meeting until uh, the third week of September. We got some time before we have to start really worrying about it. Yeah, and that, nice to have August off, uh, almost as though they planned it on purpose. We don't <laughs> every, have to worry. Year, so, every year they do. Yeah. Right, and I, I think September 22nd is the next one. So it really is an yeah. extended period of time between Fed meetings. All right, we got to get to the important stuff now, Josh. Baseball. Um, we got to talk about the Mets. Uh, they were sellers at the trade deadline. Steve Cohen, of course, uh, hedge fund Verlander, legend. Scherzer, I mean, uh, parts big with the names. two big names he picked up over the offseason. Uh, Max Scherzer, uh, uh, Justin Verlander. Uh, you know, obviously, on one level, it's it's a failure of the way this team was constructed. They still have a losing record. Kind of also ranks disappointing for the fans. They've underperformed. On the other hand, pretty characteristic of a guy who made his living 
cutting his losses. And when, when, yeah. when the stock's not working or when the asset starts to behave in a way you didn't expect, you back away. The difference is he got to do that in private with his portfolio and yeah. then maybe file a 13G 45 days after <laughs> the quarter exactly. ended. Nobody cared what he booked the loss in. This he's doing before all the world to see yes. the whole base, the whole sport and all the fans in the, the most populous uh, market in the country. It's a little bit tougher. And but just, to, just to knit it. it together a little bit for, for our, uh, our world, uh, Mike Vaccaro in the New York Post writing about this, he says, you know, Steve Cohen acted like an owner, not a fan, because there was a lot of criticism. He's just a fan who bought a toy. Uh, but he also decided he had to use a Wall Street movie reference and said, like Bud Fox said to Gordon Gecko, don't fall in love with the stock. Yeah. Right. So in other words, everyone is don't is fall in love with the starting terms. pitcher is, yeah, is, exactly. is apropos. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one that's uh, that's aging quickly and uh, and has not uh, performed very well. I mean, the Yankees, uh, we're both Yankee fans. We have to disclose that, um, you know, they could be doing better, but they are above uh, above 500. So we'll see. True. And it's a long season still. It is. Uh, Did you have fun? Did you have fun tonight? I had fun. Yeah. yeah. Were you nervous I had going as into much this? Much fun as uh, as I ever allow myself. Uh, yes, with a time. So yeah, I, I was I was only slightly nervous. Okay. Well, we'll do this. Uh, we'll do this next week. What do you we say? We will. That'll do it for us uh, right now. We will see you next Friday. Coming up next is Last Call with Contessa Brewer. Starts right now. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.